I for sure agree with BT Barnum that there's a sucker born every minute, but I maybe have a different view than him, which is that there's not really a lot of choice in a complex society. Everyone's going to have to have some risky interactions because basically every time you trust somebody else, there's some vulnerability that naturally arises. Are you ready? Are you shitty down? We're going to pull back the curtain on the divorce process, the mistakes and the missteps. How can couples navigate the divorce process? Can you still divorce in a healthy way? The conversation is as good as it gets. It's fun, insightful. It will change the way you think about your life and how to tackle life's challenges. The Shine On Podcast, season three. It's episode 59 of the Shine On Podcast. I'm Evan Shine. We have an absolutely fantastic guest on today's episode of the podcast. Coming up, I sit down with author and professor of law and psychology at the University of Pennsylvania, Tess Wilkinson-Ryan. She's out with the brand new book, Foolproof, How Fear of Playing the Sucker Shapes Ourselves in the Social Order and What We Can Do About It. This interview, which is coming up shortly, was a lot of fun. Producer Dave, how are you? I'm doing great, man. Excited for this episode. Some uh, some cool twists and turns coming up for our listeners. Yeah, no, we have a blast, as we always do on the podcast. Dave, I got to tell you, I'm feeling good. Mm. We're coming off of daylight savings, one of my favorite days <laughs> of the year. The <laughs> sun is out longer. March Madness is almost here. Spring training, baseball season, one of our favorite times of the year. It's on the horizon. And I finally got to the Chris Rock Netflix special, which I thought was brilliant. You know, I'm a big Chris Rock fan. Mm -hmm. And I think his work is tremendous. Have you seen his latest special? Yes, I saw it. Very interesting to hear what he said about Will Smith, don't you think? <laughs> that was interesting. He always gives a good uh, you know, mention or two about his divorce. And I thought the stories about his children and their experiences in private school had me in stitches along with a bit on Elon Musk. Oh, yeah. They're all great. Very interesting to hear that he actually, we don't want to spoil it for anyone, but let's just say he was pretty strict with his daughter in a certain situation that had to he kind of put his daughter out there and she had to kind of pay for her mistakes rather than doing what a lot of wealthy dads would do and just kind of say, oh, it's okay. You know what I mean, right? Yeah, no, look, I it was uh it, it was brilliant as always. Look, although the stand-up had me laughing for, I don't know, straight 60 or 70 minutes, the funniest part of my night, it may have been me trying to show my parents who were in their 70s through FaceTime how to actually <laughs> get Netflix working on their TV. And they were excited. They spent two hours leading up to the Chris Rock special on the phone with Verizon, and they finally figured out to get Netflix on their TV. And technology and people in their 70s. I mean, forget Chris Rock, Dave. This was better from a, you know, a, a comedy standpoint. Mom and Dad, I, I, I love you both. But how the hell did you get through the pandemic without Netflix? I mean, Dave, can you believe that? Or or FaceTime slash Zoom. I mean, really. Well, the FaceTime, the problem is my, my mom holds up the phone, but she thinks you have to just put it right in front of somebody's <laughs> face and follows you around with it. It's uh, You can't see anything. It's FaceTime. It's not close-up FaceTime, right? <laughs> nah, Producer Dave, yeah. from uh, your mouth to her ears, but right. I got to tell you, he was brilliant, and he had some good lines about his ex-wife and their divorce. And, Dave, we have a fun docket today, which I mentioned. It keeps with the theme on today's show, being the sucker in life, in decisions, 
in relationships and marriages and in love. Let's kick it off. And now, let's see what's on the docket. I hope you enjoy this docket, Evan, because put some thought into it. Inspired by our guest, guest, Professor Tess, you'll hear in the interview coming up that she talks about being a sucker, being a fool, and she noted that there are a lot of songs that contain the word fool. There are a lot of songs about being the sucker. So today, through music, Evan, we study this interesting sociological phenomenon, and item one comes to us from the Doobie Brothers. Item one. Let's take a listen to some of the lyrics to the Doobie Brothers, What a Fool Believes. about a sentimental fool for those unfamiliar with the song it's really about a guy who thinks he's in a relationship with a woman or at least thinks things are going to well well but that's just because he's a fool and that's what a fool believes he's reunited with an old love interest and attempts to rekindle this relationship before discovering that one never really existed that lyric you heard trying to recreate what had yet to be created kind of heartbreaking your thoughts about this song? Well, Dave, my first thought is don't stop dancing on you know, my <laughs> account. Keep it going. I'm not sure what the hell you're doing if you're picking the fruit or what. But <laughs> it's a great song. It is a good song. Whatever you're doing, keep it going. Okay. Keep the beat alive. And look, I got to tell you, th- this, is bla- this is a blast and a lot of fun. And the thing about music, which is so awesome, is that it means something different for for everybody. And what comes to mind for me when I look at these lyrics and listen to the beat and listen to the song is when people are looking for love after a divorce and they find themselves looking for the same person that they just got divorced from, the same person, and they fall into the same pattern and a cycle that can be really hard for people. And trying to recreate what had yet to even be created. There's the line that says just that, and looking for someone just like your ex to create the life you wanted Maybe it will work, but dating the exact same person as your ex with the hope that it gives you something different, I don't know. It may be a huge mistake. Well, that's an excellent interpretation of that. I hadn't thought of that particular twist on it, but yes, and I think every every divorced person thinks that if they're an optimist, they think, well, I'm out there, I'm going to find something better and something beautiful and perfect. If they're heartbroken about their marriage, maybe they just want to replace or recreate. Either way... Their heart may fool them because that's what makes you, what you do, Evan, so difficult is because the laws, but you also know that divorce is a sticky thing. When it comes to matters of the heart, sometimes logic flies out the window. Yeah, no, look, and you see that play out, Dave, that, that exact theme in divorce negotiations, whether it, when it comes to settlement or when it comes to what to argue over and really seeing the forest through the trees, all of that comes to play in different ways, shape, or form, both during the process and as we just talked about, life after divorce. Item two comes to us from a young man from Memphis, Tennessee. Item two. 
Let's take a listen to a little bit of the lyrics of Suspicious Minds by Elvis Presley. We're caught in a trap. I can't walk out because I love you too much, baby. Why can't you see? What you're doing to me When you don't believe a word I say Really Elvis Presley's last biggest hit before he passed away. We can't go on together Dave, I know you want to sing right now. I... <laughs> I would love to, but this is a uh, this is an acclaimed podcast. It's not the Dave Karaoke Hour, but anyway, of course it's suspicious minds, and of course it's about a mistrusting and dysfunctional relationship, and the need of the characters to overcome their issues in order to maintain it. We can't go on together with suspicious minds. It's sort of a, a relationship that perhaps is doomed because they don't trust each other. Although there's a little bit of hope in Elvis's voice, so. Who knows? But I know as a divorce lawyer, Evan, you're in the business of suspicious minds. So does this song remind you of anything? <laughs> yeah, no, it does. Look at Dave. People always say to, well, why don't you leave? Why do you stay in this marriage? Why do you stay in this relationship? And for me, this is about how even when there's cracks and there's flaws in a marriage for so many people, it's so hard to leave the person you once loved. It's so hard to leave the person you once thought you would spend the rest of your life with. And even when that you can't go on together, it may not make it any easier to leave. And I consult with people as I've talked about for a very long time and people for whatever reason, don't pull the trigger at the exact moment. They stay in relationships, they stay in marriages. They need to be 100% comfortable with their decision. And they also hold out hope that things are going to get better. Sometimes it does, sometimes it doesn't. Exactly right. and. The, that's incredibly hard to leave. I mean, I know personally it took me many years to consider the, the, the very notion before leaving. And there's usually a moment where you talk yourself back into it then talk yourself out of it. And it's it can be torture. But what I tell people is the right time to leave is just when you decide it is. There's, there's not, don't kill yourself trying to think of it when you think it's the best given all the circumstances, that's the time. So thank you to Elvis. We move on to item three. Item three. Item three comes to us from the Queen of Soul, Aretha Franklin. Let's hear what she has to say and find out what she means by chain of fools. This episode of Shine On Podcast, not only do you get analysis, but you get some incredible musical stars featured on the show. Aretha Franklin's Chain of Fools tells the tale of someone who's in a relationship, knows that their partner is stepping out, and knows that she's just a link in his chain. Others tell her to leave him, but she says his love is too strong and she's too weak. And someday, she says... The chain will break. As we know, every chain has got a weak link. Your thoughts on Chain of Fools? Great tune. And Dave, the question is, what does the discovery of infidelity do to your mindset and your next relationship? Is the fear of playing the sucker 
something that just stays in your mind when you're in a new relationship is the fear of being cheated on again. Does that fear stay with you? Is the fear of being one of many fear that puts up a wall so big and so high that it creates trust issues in the next relationship or marriage? That, that, that's what comes to mind for me. And you fall back into similar patterns that you've gone through in the past when it comes to relationships. Yeah, and I think from people I know who have been in these situations, there's no right answer as to whether a relationship can recover from infidelity. But I guess what we do know, with almost without exception, is it's incredibly hurtful, incredibly hurtful to find out that your partner wants to be with somebody else, at least for a moment in time. And then sometimes I think, I mean, if I had to guess, I'd say it's about 50-50. So half of relationships might survive that. And you realize you made a huge mistake. And then others are like, no. That chain broke. So we have a bonus item for the docket. Usually we only have three, but I figured you might like a little Led Zeppelin, Evan. So let's take a listen to Fool in the Rain. Playing all the hits today on the Shine On podcast. Fool, the, Fool in the Rain from Led Zeppelin is, uh, according to one observer, the song's written from the perspective of a man who's smitten, anxious, and excited to meet up with a woman. Robert Plant sings about a missed date and how disappointed he is that he's being stood up. The girl's not interested in him, and he realize, realizes he's just a fool in the rain, loving a woman that doesn't love him back. Similar to what a fool believes, I suppose, but it's there's something just really tragic about the fact that not only has he missed the date, not only does he realize this woman isn't into him, but he's all wet without an umbrella. Your thoughts? <laughs> that might be the worst part of that. <laughs> First, let me thank Led Zeppelin. Is I'm just going to do a cut and paste with some of these lyrics for my next anniversary card for my <laughs> wife. Oh, baby, there's a light in your eye that keeps shining like a star that can't wait for night. Uh, it's always good. It's making life easier around the anniversary time. But look, I think you're exactly right. You see some similarities between these lyrics and the song we listened to before. And Dave, let me ask you, when you, after divorce, started you know, dating mm -hmm. and put yourself out there, did you have these moments, these ups, these downs? You can look at the lyrics this way. You can look at it sort of staying in a relationship and marriage, having that hope, thinking it's going to get better. And then unfortunately... It doesn't. Yes, for sure. And my experience might be typical, might not. But I thought that I had learned so much about what was wrong in my prior relationship. It was heartbreaking to leave. And happily, I still have, I think, a very good relationship with my ex. But the point is, having learned from a long marriage and, and escaping that marriage and hopefully on the way to happiness, you think you a lot. You start to stuffing up with someone. You say, this is going to be great. And then something else goes wrong, something you, you didn't anticipate. And you realize there are no rules. There are no there are no perfect matches out there. there. There are hopefully people that you can love and get along with and want to spend time with. But there were plenty of times when I thought I had it figured out. And I ended up just like this dude, a fool in the rain. And well, I hope you, I hope you had your umbrella. <laughs> <laughs> well, I do take an umbrella everywhere now. But, but the point is, it's in matters of the heart, just when you think you have it all figured out. You don't, and the only day you're going to figure it out is when you figure out 
you're never going to figure it out. So you just do, you do the best you can under the circumstances and hopefully find happiness after divorce. We're up to the portion of the program where we hear from you, the listener, in this edition of Ask Evan. Ask Evan. Ask Evan. Ask Evan. Tom from Bedford, New York, says the following. Dear Evan, I've been married for 23 years, and I have my own painting and construction company. My wife and I have decided to separate and divorce. We have decided to try mediation, and I am wondering if I will need to disclose all of my financial information and business documents. I have two other partners, and I would like to keep them out of our divorce. Perplexing question. Interesting one. What do you say, Evan? It's a great question, Dave and Tom. Thanks for the question. And sorry that you're going through this. Mediation is a process we have talked about before in the podcast. Mediation is a voluntary process with a neutral mediator. And there are many benefits to the mediation process, which will be explained to you by your mediator. One of those benefits is being able to come to an agreement that works for both parties. In this case, you and your wife. Transparency is a big part of the mediation process. With that said, there are absolutely ways to structure agreements based on your goals, your interests, and the agreements that you and your wife can come to with the mediator to keep your business separate, to limit the exchange of certain financial information if it's important to you that your business and your partners need and should be kept out of the divorce. But it's definitely something to consider and to bring up in mediation. That's another edition of Ask Evan. If you want to submit a question for Evan to answer on the podcast, email producer Dave at david at pod617.com. Our featured guest on this week's episode of the podcast is Tess Wilkinson-Ryan. She is a professor of law and psychology at the University of Pennsylvania and the author of the newly released book, Foolproof, How the Fear of Playing the Sucker Shapes Ourselves and the Social Order and What We Can Do About It. Tess, welcome to the podcast. It's absolutely wonderful to have you with us. Thank you so much for having me. This is really fun. And Tess, I want to first say congratulations on your new book, which I know just came out earlier this month. I would imagine the past few weeks have been an absolute whirlwind for you. They have been incredibly fun. I will say it's not that often at this sort of stage of life that you get to do all these like big celebratory things. And this has been a blast. It's sort of like getting tenure and getting married all at once. <laughs> Exciting times. Absolutely. And I absolutely love the topics that are in your book. I, I, I think the topic is fascinating. So let's dive right into it. Great. To start, was P.T. Barnum, was he right? Is there a sucker born every minute? In other words, are humans, are we all naturally programmed to fall for scams? And if so, what are the traits that fail us in those crucial decision-making moments? So I for sure agree with P.T. Barnum that there's a sucker born every minute but I maybe have a different view than him, which is that there's not really a lot of choice in a complex society. Everyone's going to have to have some risky interactions because basically every time you trust somebody else, there's some vulnerability that naturally arises. And I don't know that there's a lot of fulfilling or successful lives that can flow from a total lack of trust. So the kinds of things that lead to being a sucker are often the kinds of things that are most important to you in your day to day, right? Having relationships with other humans, investing in promising projects, donating to important causes, that kind of a thing. And so Tess, one might think that 
technology, it can help people from really falling prey mm -hmm. to scams. But on the other hand, technology in many ways seems to facilitate certain scams. So tell us how social media, email, and other modern forms of communication really affect the vulnerability of the so-called sucker. Yeah, that's a really interesting question. I think one of the challenges with any new technology is that different, any group of people is going to have sort of a, a diverse set of experiences with the technology. There's going to be sort of your early adopters, right, who are already really good at it, and then people coming later to the game. Oftentimes, this is kind of generational, right? So my kids' understanding of social media is for sure more sophisticated than mine, for example. Okay, this is, I'm sure, I'm sure this is a familiar phenomenon to a lot of people. <laughs> I'm and right I, there with you, by the way. No, and I feel the same way about this generationally above, too, right? So I worry, for example, about my parents or my in-laws falling prey to certain kinds of email scams in part because when you're in a less familiar environment, and I'm gonna count in this case, I'll count like email as an environment or our social media platform as an environment. When you're in a less familiar environment, you just don't have the same like finely honed sort of scam detection mechanisms, right? It's not, so I'll give you, I'll give you an example of this actually. So my, one of my relatives, my older relatives got, got a phone call saying that their computer had a virus and they were alarmed and of course, they they're they they did in fact find that their computer was challenging for them like they so it sure. wasn't they didn't seem to it did, they didn't find it super far fetched to think that the computer might have a virus and so they paid money they they gave some of the credit card number over the phone and of course this was a total scam there's a couple of things about this one is that like the the less familiar you are with the situation the easier are you, the easier it is to feel taken advantage of i think this is the experience of a lot of people for example when they're traveling internationally that they find it really hard to tell what are legitimate businesses and what aren't right it's just because everything's so unfamiliar the other thing that's that's tough about these situations is that people get so embarrassed by feeling taken advantage of that they often don't want to say anything about it that's so such a so it's such a great point. And, and looking at it from the other perspective, what's the psychology of the scammer? It's an interesting question. I don't know that scammers or suckers are different than anybody else. I don't know that there's something, I think usually we're talking about people who have, I'm mean, oh, sorry, let me put to the side people whose life's work is basically perpetrating a Ponzi scheme. Sure. Okay, that's, let's, okay. And have, and think about sort of the more low level low-level interactions that could you that you might think of as a scammer okay and i would say every once in a while people sort of see an opportunity to take advantage and they see a case where they're maybe not going to get they're not going to sort of have to suffer the social repercussions and it's and they exploit it and 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 go forward i don't know that there's i mean part of the argument of the book is that depending on how you look up look at it a lot of normal interactions can be sort of reframed in scammer sucker type terms and that that's what makes it so hard as an individual to sort of navigate the world and feel confident that either a hustle when you see one or that you're even correctly understanding the, so the social dynamics around you that are exploitative and Tess, as you think back to your past and your own life was there a moment where you played the sucker <laughs> yes of course <laughs> <laughs> time are you kidding <laughs> so th think back to when it happened yeah you know, I don't know, no, sure. or no, something. Sure, what's sure. the you know as you look back on that moment yeah right? no when i thought take to us myself, into, yeah take yeah. us into that moment yeah. you know yeah. for you where it wasn't until later yeah. on that you realized like how could you have been in that position take us into your mindset 
Yes, yes. Actually, if it's okay with you, I want to actually draw a parallel between a case that I teach sometimes and an experience that I had. Please. Okay, I know this is, I know we're, we're all lawyers here, right? So I sometimes teach this case either in contracts, like I teach first year contracts, or in consumer law called uh, Vokes versus Arthur Murray Dance Studio. This is a case about a woman who had gone to Arthur Murray Dance Studio in the 60s. This is a, this is a place to take ballroom dancing lessons. And she had signed up for ballroom dancing lessons and the ballroom dancing lessons she had i guess she liked them well enough and she was sort of convinced into buying something like thirty thousand hour i'm sorry thirty thousand dollars worth of lessons and like thousands of hours worth of lessons that she couldn't possibly use like even if she was dancing full-time and she basically sued for misrepresentation and her theory was you lied to me about how good i am at dancing which is a pretty wild claim, right? Like the idea that she had sort of relied on their opinion of how good she was at dancing. Okay. I'm smiling because there's so many things that come to mind in terms of how could someone actually dance for $30,000 you know, worth of didn't lessons. Make any or, sense. It doesn't make any sense. So, so when you teach that, what's the reaction from your from your students? Like when you, when you give that example, that case, yep. right? Yep. What's the response to that? Well, I'll say there's a couple layers of this story. The one is that it is inescapable that the opinion is really aimed at some traditional and pretty offensive gender stereotypes. Yep. So this woman is described as being a widow of 51 years. It's actually unclear if she's 51 years old or if she's, okay, but all right, but, or she's been, a, it seems unlikely she's a widow for 51 years. Okay, but so basically the, the, the argument of the judge, the judge is sort of dripping with condescension and basically says, this is a lonely old woman who's been, who's let herself be taken advantage of, essentially let herself be seduced into this. Mm -hmm. So it's actually quite offensive. So we spend a fair bit of time talking about how, why the, why the court feels as comfortable as it does, sort of engaging in this, in these particular kinds of tropes about the woman. And then we spend a lot of time talking about like, what do you do in this situation? Because on the one hand, you want to say to Mrs. Vokes, like, what the heck were you doing? Right, like, don't keep giving them ah, <laughs> don't keep giving them money. <laughs> right, you can't dance that much, that many hours, and you probably could have found out from somebody that you aren't that good at dancing, and also you probably shouldn't trust somebody who makes money off of your dance lessons to tell you that you need more dance lessons. Right, like, it's, there's a conflict of interest that we want we want consumers to be thoughtful about. Right. Okay, so so everyone's arguing about this thing, like how can you let the, how can you let her unwind this contract? This is her fault, right? And then you have the other side of the coin, which is people saying, but wait, but wait, but wait. If we don't if we don't take her claim seriously, then it means we're going to ignore something that the dance studio is doing that we actually think is pretty systematically pernicious. Like they're systematically trying to trying to identify people whom they can convince. Look, if you buy extra dance lessons, you get extra status points. You get to go to the fanciest ballroom dancing, whatever conventions, I guess. And they they have a sort of a business practice that's you know explicitly they're trying to sell something that has no value. And shouldn't that shouldn't they be held to account? So the court takes this kind of interesting, like odd middle path, if I may, which is that they're going to basically say really mean things about the plaintiff, and then but then deny the motion to dismiss and let the, let her claim go forward. So this takes me back to contracts one on one when I was in <laughs> law school, and, and I, I could spend all day talking about that, but that's a separate issue. And Tess, you touch on it both now and in the book, because your book covers stereotyping and racism. Yep. So how do these phenomena connect to scams? 
Yeah, when I first started thinking about this book, I really was not thinking about the social psychology element, especially not the sort of stereotype stereotypes and basically implicit bias types of questions. But but I do have a my background is in psychology, and I did have to take all the social psychology you know courses that everybody else does to get the PhD, and so I was familiar with a set of social psychology studies that are broadly thought of as being as they're called something like a stereotype content model of stereotyping and the gist of them is look for most kinds of stereo group stereotypes so these are these are beliefs that some group of people hold about members of other groups if that makes sense okay that's that's the gist of a stereotype stereotypes have content it's not that they're just like raw animus right it's not just that i like it's not just that that sort of sexism is just like raw animus toward women, right? It's not just pure hostility. It's a set of beliefs. It's a set of beliefs. And so, and, and so what I was, what I sort of hit upon as I was thinking about this set of questions about suckers is it's wild to look at the social psychological mapping of the content of different stereotypes and see how many of the stereotypic beliefs, the, the constitutive elements of prejudice are about warnings that members of some other group are trying to scam you, right? Are there schemers or connivers? They're sort of trying to get more than they deserve, right? Or not so much warnings, but more like dismissals that members of another group are actually foolish, that they're actually sort of in this broader sense, suckers. And I think the gender stereotyping was, which is what was, you know, which is what I'm sort of thinking about in relationship to this case, was a particularly interesting area to consider this sort of set of scammer sucker stereotypes because actually both kind of exist in sexism so there's both a set of traditional stereotypic views about women as gullible naive patient yielding that kind of thing which if you if you have to be patient and yielding all the time eventually you're going to like have to take the bad deal right you can't you can't sure. keep being patient and yielding and like it's sort of like if you think about yourself like if you think about yourself like sitting in the audience as someone like demonstrates like a set of knives or a timeshare or whatever right right sure. <laughs> okay but then there's also a set of a set of, of a set of stereotypes that are often described as part of hostile sexism, which basically say like women are going to claim discrimination, but what they really want is special favors. So, so that was the, when I started really looking into this sort of special favors rhetoric, I thought, wow, that really rings a bell to me as, as a sort of a claim that some group is trying to get more than they deserve. They're trying to put one over on the society. And I think part of the reason it has so much power is because people find the mm -hmm. idea of playing the sucker so aversive. That it's a it's like a warning that works like stay away what can someone do to truly become foolproof and to avoid becoming a sucker oh gosh i don't think you're gonna like the answer <laughs> <laughs> let's hear it all right i don't want to say like total surrender but but okay <laughs> so the core the core of the argument that i'm making here in the book is it's really easy to get preoccupied with what are essentially minor scams Things that don't really matter to you in the big picture, but can really capture your attention. One of the things I describe in the book, which is like one of my favorite examples in part because it involves my sister and it's fun to like have her be like the, <laughs> to have her like, <laughs> have to be described this way. But it's just this example of her going biking and coming to us. She lives in Vermont and Vermont is, Vermont can be both like very rural and it can also be kind of tourist trappy. And her, she's going biking and she's super thirsty because now a long bike ride and she's biking people who are 
very serious bikers and she's like just trying to keep up or whatever and they go to the general store and she wants some gatorade because she's actually starting to feel like lightheaded and the gator and it turns out that the store is not just a regular like gas station or whatever it's a tourist trap with like those little white and black stickers from vt okay and and the gatorade's like six dollars <laughs> and she had she, she said she said she's like i had a moment of being like I am not going to be the person who pays $6 for Gatorade, like some kind of like, right? Like what kind of a fool do you think I am? And then having to stop herself and be like, what am I doing? Like I have to get back on this bike and like bike a whole bunch of more miles. This Gatorade's worth a hundred dollars right now. I don't, okay. My part of the intuition, part of the thing I think that I think that I think about this broader problem of sort of scam detection is that we spend a lot of time being really alert for these minor scams, right? Am I gonna? Am I overpaying for something? Have I have I given money to somebody who's who doesn't deserve the money as much as I had said? Am I is my have I voted the wrong whatever some charitable or some like sort of social welfare policy that that I support is it going to the wrong people? Sure. Okay. And I think people spend basically more time on those than they need, like more mental energy, scanning the horizon for these things that don't matter that much, and not stopping to ask themselves, wait, do I really care? And then the converse, maybe too little energy scanning the horizon for the bigger, more or impa more impactful forms of exploitation. So things that are happening at the structural level, for example. Yeah, which I can. I'm happy to keep. <laughs> I can go on and on about this. But but so but so so my my real my real advice is, in the generally in the book, like the the goal is to actually have the right amount of fear of playing the sucker, with a little bit of an understanding that sometime you're going to get taken advantage of or duped. It's just, there's not, the, the law of large numbers says you have a ton of interactions, right? Over the course of a month, you probably have what, a, six figures of interactions, right? Some of these interactions are gonna go away that you don't quite hope. And so you have to really, so you wanna think seriously about where you wanna spend that like vigilant energy, right? Where does it belong? I'll tell you, your story makes me feel much better about the four ninety nine Gatorade I bought this morning. <laughs> <laughs> well, I think that you, I think that you live in New York, so I think you have to have a whole different say, scale. I, I'm in New York City. And, you you know, have to... Gatorade is the least of the issues you know, <laughs> well, here. But uh, yeah, the Vermonters exactly. The Vermonters were like the New Yorkers aren't even going to notice this. <laughs> no, no, no. I'm feeling all, all all much better since we talked about the uh, six dollar Gatorade. But Tess, let me ask you about another topic in the book, really the phenomena such as road rage, right? So mm, tell us more mm -hmm. about the connection between that and yeah. the psychology of, of being calm. Yeah, okay. So so one of the things I'm I was trying I'm trying to map out is like what is the emotional experience of a sucker? In part in order to say like this is why it feels like such a big this is why it's such a big deal to feel suckered. And part of the emotional experience is this like sort of feeling of I mean I think of humiliation I think and a lot of people respond to that feeling with anger. That seems not I mean, which is natural enough so the road rage i was trying whenever i talk to people sort of informally about the idea of the, about the thought the fact that i'm writing a book about or i wrote a book about being a sucker like it takes like three sentences before people are talking about traffic like traffic is like everybody's <laughs> go-to is like the go-to example because it's funny i have my, my my husband is is like it's a very like he just is a genuinely laid back person and he will say the one time when i genuinely feel like i i cannot let myself be a sucker is letting people is basically letting people merge in on the highway near us <laughs> like he's like it's this whole he's like i can really work myself up to being like i must defend my honor on this highway which of course so, <laughs> so I, I one of the one of the examples i found that i thought was great was that was this like there's like this sort of 
traffic education campaign that's where they're where the departments of transportation in various areas have been putting out signs that say merge late and it, it turns out that the point of this sign is basically to tell people it's okay that some people are merging late it's actually more efficient to have everyone merge at the last possible minute even though i think often american drivers are are understand that there's like a line like you're supposed to form a line like get in line basically is, is right so you get in line early and then you get irate at the people who like zip up the empty lane and try to nose in at the end and the idea of this merge late campaign is trying to convince drivers not to keep getting mad at the people in the other lane and to basically to fill out both lanes and one of the challenges it turns out has been road rage incidents like people who feel like suckers being so angry that they're willing to basically be aggressive to other drivers on the highway. So road rage to me was like this nice thing, not nice, it's a, whatever. It's a, it's, it's, a, it's, a, it's a very salient, vivid example of people really overreacting to this basically very minor thing in their lives. So much so that they're getting, that they're willing to like be aggressive toward other humans, not to mention like risk bodily injury, right? So that's, that's the road rage example is just, is this well, the natural experience that people who feel suckered feel furious and sometimes that fury comes out in the form of dramatic overreaction. Tess, give us an example of a way someone might play the sucker mm -hmm. in a personal relationship or in their own marriage. This is a super interesting question and one that I think just comes up all the time. So there's a couple of different ways to think about this. One I wanna say is that actually in love, I think is the most honest and open-minded reckoning that most people do with the idea of feeling like a fool. In part, I feel like we know this just from love songs. <laughs> so, I mean, if you look at the number of love songs that have fool in the title, it's it's like it's really a lot of love songs. If you think about like the the Bill, the Bill Withers song, right, Use Me, right? Yep. It's literally it's literally an <laughs> argument between someone who's in love and his friends trying to tell him that you're being used and he says like you you people have lost it this obviously yeah. this is a great situation call it whatever you want and i think it's i think that there's some like pretty deep wisdom in these songs about the idea that you just can't have intimacy without vulnerability and that means that people are open to being taken advantage of in ways that really that, are, that matter one of the one of the one of the stories that I tell in the book is about is when I is about my when I was when I met my now husband, which is like 20, 20 years ago. And periodically, I would try to like negotiate the terms of our like affection and be like, well, what exactly do you is it? Do you like something that I'm like bringing to this, or do you like me for some for me? And he was like, what? are you talking about like what would possibly be the difference and i think he actually had the more the smarter view which was like sorry like we're just all in here like you're there's not like like you're the fact that you have a car is great but <laughs> and i don't know maybe it does matter to my, with with that said i think i mean okay so there's the there's the love part there's the there's the part about like the necessary vulnerability to to being taken advantage of that i think is endemic in the enterprise of love and then there's the flip side which is that when relationships dissolve i think a lot of the deep of the deepest hurt feelings are about just a feeling of like raw betrayal right of like i cannot believe that you've made me play the fool in this way when i when i first started doing psychological research i was writing about i, I 
for whatever reason, I, st I started writing about, about divorce and divorce bargaining. And this is not my otherwise my area of study, but it was an area where I felt pretty confident that people's sort of common sense moral intuitions were just often out of joint with the law, especially the, and so I sort of asked people basically, like, what do you think about the, about equal division of property in a world in which there's the parties believe that there is fault in the actual, in the relationship, right? So there's been some clear cleavage, some, some major betrayal and people, even, even when I told people, you, you have to be objective about this. You can't take seriously the fault questions. You could see that it infected the way that they responded to things. And I, and I think that that's like they, the, the prospect of sort of doing something that felt to them like re rewarding somebody who had taken advantage just felt so bad. I mean, I, I see it all the time as a family law attorney and a divorce attorney. I mean, really the emotions and the hurt and the betrayal and really whether it's a fidelity or so many other things, you see that come across in divorce negotiations or how people view the division of property or really the conversation about how to fairly divide certain That's things right. because everyone's coming into that negotiation with a certain emotion, with a certain feeling. And for some people, a lot of people, that's betrayal, that's hurt, that's, that's right. a lack of trust. You can even imagine, I mean, I think that what a common, or you can tell me if you, if you see this, is that both people think the other one has betrayed them. Like, actually, it's like a mutual, like, you think I'm in fault here, I think you're at fault here. And of course, it makes sense that that would be true. Like, marriage is complex, right? By the time it dissolves, a lot of things have happened. And you can imagine that sort of these, that everyone has experienced. It's like, I mean, after I wrote about, after I wrote about divorce bargaining, basically when, when you give out these surveys to, to people to, to fill out or whatever, oftentimes I would leave a little box in the, or whatever at the end to say like, what did you think of this survey? And people would write in to me. And when I was doing the divorce bargaining surveys, the, the problem here is the breach of the, of the marriage contract, which is what made me start being, which is what led me to be a contract scholar actually, because I was like, oh wait, maybe some of these core intuitions about betrayal and contract actually yield they make sense in breach too and in breach and when i teach some like especially toward the end of the semester when things are getting more complicated in, in like first year contracts you get into these cases where basically everyone thinks everyone else breached like, well it's exactly right and even in the divorce world in my world you have a scenario where someone you have that mutual blame or the pointing of the finger in every which way in every direction where no one ever thinks it's just one person's fault or the reason that the affair or infidelity happened was because of something he did or she did, or it spirals back and back and back. And then it ends up being a domino effect. Yep. And both sides have hurt. Both sides feel betrayed. Yep. And both sides have that emotion. And it really impacts and affects when it does come to the divorce negotiation. That makes total sense. I think that's one of other... There's a study I really like that's called something about like, it's called something like self-serving biases and bargaining impasse, basically like, like when negotiations break down. And the, the, the point of the article is basically negotiations break down when both sides think that the other side is negotiating in bad faith. Yep. And that, I mean, you would know better than I would, but the idea is they think like both, both sides believe the other side is actually here to take advantage of this situation, not to do something that's fair. And that's in part because even when they try to be objective about what the range of fair outcomes is, their viewpoint is necessarily personal, right? It's, it, 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 it sort of is, it's like affected by 
what their own preferred outcome is. Tennis, your book covers the hashtag Me Too movement. Tell us some more about that and why that's an example of the psychology of, of playing the soccer. One of the things that I was arguing when I was writing about this, especially when I was writing about the social psychology of sexism in this book, was trying to think about some of the ways that people have described the Me Too movement and then some of the backlash to that movement. And some of the backlash to the movement has been actually the concern, the, the deepest concern or one of the deeper concerns is if, for example, women are empowered to bring their claims of sexual harassment, that they're going to start using that power to get an unfair advantage in other situations. So the, so the claim was, look, we should be worried about women who are going to sort of exploit this newfound power of, of, of bringing public successful claims of harassment in the workplace or in other places. So I was thinking about the Me Too movement as a sort of exemplar of the ways that gender stereotypes that hit on this sort of accusation of scamming are deployed in, in really high stakes social movements and sort of high stakes moments for us as a culture. Yes, I'm an adjunct professor at Cardozo Law School in New York City, and I absolutely love teaching. You talked it's, about- It's the best know, job. It's, it's fantastic. It's, so it, fun, it's yeah. love nothing more. And so let me ask you, who are your influences either in the field of psychology, law, or professors along the way who helped shape your path? For sure, the biggest influence on me, I mean, on my whole intellectual trajectory is my dissertation advisor, John Barron. He's a moral psychologist and a judgment decision-making expert at the University of Pennsylvania. This is where I got my PhD. And it was just raw luck that he happened to be at the same place that I was, and he happened to study the kind of work that I like, because he basically has had this incredibly capacious research agenda over the course of a career that took seriously that legal decision-making is its own kind of decision-making. Like that when people are engaged in thinking about the law, that, that counts as a sort of a high stakes site of cognitive psychology. And which is that I think it's unusual for psychologists to be open to thinking about legal decision-making. And so for me, as a graduating law student, going into my PhD, being able to work with somebody who was also willing to be interested in contracts was just like an amazing, an amazing gift. I think for a lot of psychologists, for a lot of, for a lot of law professors interested in, in, in psychology, the, some of the the giants of our field are um, people like Jeff Verklinski at Cornell, like Cass Sunstein at Harvard, people who've been writing for the last 20, 30 years about why legal decision-making matters and why we should understand it better. Like why we could, why we should do a better job of understanding what happens when humans try to navigate complex problems. And then I'll say that in this book, especially was heavily influenced by my colleague, Dorothy Roberts, who writes a lot about families and about race. And so she really helped me think about some of the critical parts of what racial hierarchy looks like in family, in, in family law and in, and in other legal decision-making contexts in ways that I could think a little bit critically about some of the things that I was writing about, including sexism and, and family structures. Yes, I have to tell you, this was fantastic. Your book, Foolproof, is out on the shelves and on Amazon and so many other places. It truly is a must read. Your book really touches on so many fascinating topics. I want to thank you for coming on the podcast. Thank you so much. This was really fun. I had to, I had to say I had, I felt like getting to write this book was like a total gift of the, the last couple of years. And so having, having conversations like this is just awesome. So thank you so much for inviting me.
Episode 59 of the Shine On Podcast. Author Tess Wilkinson, Ryan. She was great. She was brilliant. And her book, Foolproof, check it out. Producer Dave, what a show. How about that interview with the professor, Tess Wilkinson, Ryan? How about that music docket? <laughs> great guest who works at a great university, my alma mater. And we had music as well today. What else could the Shine On listeners possibly ask for? Can't beat that and can't beat you, producer Dave. All the listeners can. Keep listening to the podcast and all major podcast platforms, Apple, Spotify, Stitcher, and wherever else you listen to your podcast. Follow the podcast and subscribe. I'm Evan Shine, and I'll talk to you again real soon.